Hey, I'm MJ Taller, also known as a black wine guy. I went from being a totally obsessed wine newbie to becoming the world's first ever African-American fine and rare wine auctioneer in less than three years. In this show, I'll be talking to the Mavericks, the philosophers, the players, and the deep thinkers who inhabit the world of wine. They'll share their experiences on how they made it, but more importantly, how they failed and got back up again. So grab a glass and let's get to it. This is the Black Wine Guy Experience. Hello, welcome to the Black Wine Guy Experience. I'm your host, MJ Taller, a.k.a. the Black Wine Guy. And my guest today is James Molesworth, Senior Editor at the Wine Spectator Magazine. Super excited to have you here. A little bit about James. He is based in the New York office, and he's the lead taster for California Cabernet, Bordeaux, and the Rhone Valley region, and Port. Yep. And up until 2020, he regularly traveled to those areas <laughs> yeah. to visit wineries, to taste wines, and do his reports. <clears throat> um, when he's not tasting wine or writing, my man's got the dope-ass vinyl collection <laughs> uh, you've seen on Instagram, or he's hitting the gym. I, I um, see his post about skip the burger get the salmon and the salad yep you know um so i love that uh you are into the wine and wellness and and creating that that uh making a sustainable lifestyle and um welcome is there anything else you'd like to add i'm happy to be here thanks for having me awesome so james and i connected through Instagram. Yeah. Instagram is working for me. Um, <laughs> and That's uh, all we got to do since we've got to stay at home all the time now is yeah. spend time on Instagram. I was I actually had a timer on it, and I was trying to spend only 15 minutes a day. That that shit went out the window. Yeah, I put my one-hour limit on it. <laughs> I'm pretty good when it, when it locks. I, you know, I don't override the lock too many times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so um, you are, you are, you write about King Cabernet, you mm -hmm. write about Bordeaux, yep. Bordeaux, and Rhone, all, all stuff I love. Um, what wine did you bring today? Uh, you said to bring a little something fun, so I brought a California Cabernet from uh, Mount Vitor Winery, the their 2017, and this is, uh, it's labeled Napa Valley uh, because it blends fruit from Mount Vitor and then from the valley floor, so those different AVAs, they just call it. Napa Valley, but it tastes very Mount Vitor-like. Uh, that 35% of Mount Vitor fruit really marks the wine. And I love the Mount Vitor wines um, because they have a very distinct fruit profile. It's a mix of red and blue and black fruits. And then there's a lot of herbaceous notes in there. And when I say herbaceous, I mean ripe mm -hmm. herbaceous, not the uh, overtly green. Yeah, the uh, vegetal, yeah, the that vegetal. bell pepper. No, no. I'm, I'm getting that. It's yeah. like you get that. It's like that a white. sassafras mm -hmm. and then bay, sweet bay. Um, and I, I just love the, the distinctive nature of them. They age very well. Uh, it's not that hard to find, and when it comes to California Cabernet, which basically starts at 100 bucks and goes up quickly, this is a $45 bottle of wine that you can put in your cellar for 10 years. It's totally legit cab, and it's probably one of the best deals out there right now. That's actually, I didn't realize it was still that affordable. That's, yep. <clears throat> that's really incredible. Uh, Christ, 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 <laughs> price. Yeah. I was like, Jesus Christ, that's so <laughs> affordable um, for Napa Valley Cab. And uh, yeah, you do get, I do get some mountain fruit. You're getting, you're getting that black, yeah. you know, dark, and it's very struggled. But the thing is, you just pop this. It's this is like. This yeah, 2017, this is tasting pretty good right out the gate. That's a function of the vintage, I think, um, which was uh, a pretty good vintage up until a heat wave around Labor Day. And then they, that was the first year they had the big wildfires. Of course, they've, they've got them going on right now. Um, 
but in 2017, I find the wines are very expressive, very fruit forward. They don't have quite the the, the backbone or spine of say 16 or 15, so they're really delicious now. There's some there's some great wines, but it's the most inconsistent vintage the valley has had since the rainy 2011. Interesting. Um, so interesting. Well, so you actually just came back from. Uh, Napa Valley. I did, yeah. And uh, so you were on the front lines of uh, just the devastation that's going on there. Yeah, well, the first responders were on the front lines, and, and some of the people I know were literally uh, ended up to their to their waist. Um, I, I got to tour around a little bit with the road closures, and I didn't have a, an ag pass to, to get past the roadblocks. I didn't have full access to stuff. But I was in touch with a lot of winemakers and people who were really dealing with it head on. And uh, this one was scary. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, the wildfires in general are, are scary, but this was weird because uh, it started at three in the morning, really took off in a hurry uh, under just, you know, ideal conditions for a wildfire, hot, dry, windy. Uh, and it moved across the valley floor, which is not really typical of how the wildfires move up there. And, uh, you know, our coverage on Wine Spectator, uh, there's uh, about two dozen wineries that are gone. Meadowood, parts of Meadowood is gone. I mean, mm-hmm. there were there were a visual aspect to the photographs that were coming out of there that I think people went, whoa, as opposed to, say, just a burned car or, you know, other wildfire uh, debris. This was stuff that people knew and had been to and had visited and spent time. And so this was... This was uh, more visceral, and and people were scared. And then, of course, the air quality was just horrific. By um, you know, it started on a Sunday, and by w- Tuesday you you could smell it, and by Wednesday in downtown Napa, it was thick with smoke. Uh, yeah. you needed an N95 mask just to run walk around the block. It was it was nasty. Now, is this your first time ever experiencing wildfires in California? Yeah, first time to be there while it happened. Um, so, you know, it had a different effect on me as opposed to, you know, just reading a, a newspaper report and seeing some photos, um, but seeing what people had to deal with. Uh, you know, a lot of these uh, grape growers, are, are they're, they're truly agricultural, and a lot of them have mixed farming. So, I, you know, I had one uh, winemaker out there, uh, Lily Berlin from El Molino. She had to move four cats, three dogs, uh, a couple of horses. I mean, like, you, you know, this is not just leaving your house which is tra- mm-hmm. traumatic and stressful mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is a lot of a lot of moving pieces out there and it's in the middle of harvest which was you know a real uh, logistical nightmare for a lot of people yeah i think um people who live on the east coast don't understand earthquakes and wildfires earth i'll be honest earthquakes are kind of cool i just, just <laughs> they're weird because you're like the first time i was an earthquake i was like Wait, is there a subway station underneath? Because you know that it has that like it was it was um, there's right. like rollers and there's you know there's different types of, and I was like, dude, you're in Santa Barbara, there's no subway. <laughs> so you know, and then I actually went outside, a tree was moving like wah, wah. so yeah. earthquakes. But I remember because I lived out in Santa Barbara for ten years, wildfires. You just there's nothing like that on the east. There's nothing yeah. like, <clears throat> and like you said, normally they. You know they they can they get stopped on the mountain. They very rarely get right. burned down to the ground. You know, um, but you just you can look up and see a ridge line. It's just all on fire. Like it's 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 the most. It's scary. It's, I mean, it's apocalyptic. Just, it's like flat you, out scary, right. and it's and you just don't understand the scale of it until you you're there. For, right. It's not it's not a dumpster fire. It's the entire mountain is on fire, right. and you see it moving, and it's it's really scary, especially at night. But yeah. I mean, it's most dramatic. Yeah. Totally. And then you get, and then there's that eerie, you see some of the pictures, you know, you saw them in Portland and Washington and other places there, but then there's a surreal beauty because the smoke, the, the, the sun is like red when it's coming yeah. up. It's kind of, it's so it's, it's, but um, yeah, until I don't, like you said, unless you've actually, actually seen a fire wildfire, you have no idea of like, it makes you really feel insignificant. Like, like there's, you're like, they're, 
you have these people they're putting their lives at risk to, yep. to, to you know and like you said and then when you go and you see the devastation when you see some some place you've been or a house you've dri- driven past for years and it's just burnt down and days and, later and the, still and the next, right and the next one hasn't even been touched which is the other <clears throat> weird thing that people right. don't realize these things move so fast and they're so pointed in their direction that they can literally just go buy two houses not touch one and the other one's gone it's, it's totally like yeah. backdraft it's yeah. seeking the path of least resistance like yeah. okay we're gonna just burn through these yeah. so it's it's um yeah it's 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 uh, you know yeah. I mean I, I hate to say but it's 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 probably for you as a journalist it's good that you actually got to experience that on yeah, one level I, on exactly on that level I'm I'm happy I was there which sounds odd but I, I was happy to see it firsthand and, and and you know be able to empathize with people who are in that situation rather than simply call someone on the phone and say hey how's your house and okay yeah. I'm writing a news story which you know getting the information out is important but being able to to experience it firsthand is is also uh, you know pretty critical totally 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 so um, you know. As a journalist who used to travel all the time, yeah. um, so we have a couple things happening right now that I want to ask you about. So, one, COVID nineteen. I mean, for one, I know that there's a lot more wine available at retail that was restaurant only. Mm-hmm. Um, you can talk about that. But two, um, yeah. What do you? I mean, what do you think? What's going to happen with the the hospitality and wine industry with, with the COVID? I mean, this is. Uh this is a huge problem, and it's pretty devastating that it's taking the government so long to realize just how critical this industry is. Uh, I, I can understand the need to deal with the airline industry and some other industries, but I don't think anybody realized how woven into the fabric of everyday life the restaurant is. It is something we all really took for granted, mm-hmm. uh, especially in a place like New York City where you just you walk out and you can just pick any place mm-hmm. on your block. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm sure you have friends. I have friends who, who have been out of work through all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the frustration of not being able to go out and share a meal with friends and family um, is is devastating. As to what it's going to do to the industry, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about how they have to, you know, redo their margins and, and reformulate their, their business, you know, how it works. But I don't see how they can do that. The food costs are the food costs. Mm-hmm. The staff is the staff costs. You know, staff relies on tipping uh, to a certain extent. I mean, I don't see how they can just double prices in order to not be basically paying bills, you know, from hand hand to mouth uh, as they run these businesses. So this is this is a narrow margin business. It's mm-hmm. run by people who are extremely passionate mm-hmm. about what they do mm-hmm. and it's it's part of um, you know, this country's fabric that needs to be there. So because of that need, I think it will come back. I think it's going to come back in fits and starts. Um, and it's going to be based on, you know, when they can open, when do people feel safe going out to dine, a, a lot of these uh, aspects but it's got to come back, but we can't take it for granted again. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm actually on the way into the studio. <clears throat> I was reading an um, article. Um, was it, I, don't, I think you believe my producer posted. <laughs> I was like, who posted? Was it you? Was it you? Um, the, um, <clears throat> the New England Journal of Medicine, for the first time, has like made a presidential election recommendation <laughs> based on the incompetence of the the leadership uh you know and you know i don't, I don't get too play on the show but like like this what has happened to people to the industry i love and you know it's like and then for them to do that that's huge like and 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 you work and you're a journalist and, and every senior editor signed off on it too there was like no disagreement like mm-hmm. you know like there's so much at stake like you said there's so much like of the American way of when people talk about the American way of life, like going out to a restaurant is part of the American way of life. Right. 
I'm not talking Fridays and Applebee's, yep. right? You know what I mean? Like, it's like, and when you talk about entrepreneurs, like these are hardworking people who are passionate. They're artists, in fact. And the fact that we haven't protected them, it's, it's pretty atrocious. Which, while we're on the top of government, so then tariffs. How are tariffs affecting Bordeaux, the Rhone? I mean, Europe in general, but I mean, you know, Bordeaux, yeah. which, you know. Yeah, the tariffs were definitely a big issue this year, and, and they've basically been kicking the can down the road on this uh, and not and putting in new tariffs, so the threat of new tariffs is there. Uh, there were some loopholes in the tariffs that allowed certain wines to get through without being taxed, but other ones are, are, are feeling the pinch. Um, you know, let's face it, exports from or imports from France are, are off, and, and that's a function of uh, pricing, and, and some domains are getting hurt. Others, though, are thriving, as what you alluded to uh, in your opening comments, where at retail you now have access to a lot of wines that only used to go to restaurants, but with the restaurants uh, not up at full capacity, a lot of that wine is shifting to retail. So. Consumption is up in America, for sure. But um, it's the brands that people are familiar with um, and that they know well and that are uh, you know easier to find and have that what they call continuity. They're, they're never run out because they're always there, even when they make a vintage change. Those brands are doing very, very well. Um, and then, of course, the collectors who can and are lucky enough to still be doing well in this time, you know, they're snapping up all the you know the allocated stuff. And then there's that middle tranche of basically anything above twenty five bucks, you know, to a hundred, which is it's not moving as fast as as you might think, yeah. Um, and you know the the um, the European exports have been have been hurt. Um, they haven't been devastated by tariffs, but they've been hurt. Uh, you know, COVID in, in general is is a bigger problem than the tariffs. Sure, sure. Um, but we need to get rid of those tariffs for the wine industry. It's affecting too many people along the chain, from the producer uh, to the importer to the distributor to the retailer, and then the consumer. It's they're, they're not working. Yeah, it just for me, I just I'm perplexed. Like from a logic sense. You're supposed to be pro-business as a party, right. you know, pro-American dream. You're, you're putting so many small business owners and entrepreneurs out of business with these policies. It's Yep. I, yeah, and you're, and you're penalizing an industry that had nothing to do with the initial squabble, which was over airline right. uh, subsidies uh, right. between Airbus and, and, right. and Boeing. And, and both sides basically are at fault. So it's right. like, come yeah. on, guys. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we're going it's, to – it's totally – it's like – Billy did it, yep. you know. <laughs> it's one of those, right, on the playground. Yep. Oh my God! Um, so, um, tell me, man, how'd you get into wine? Uh, so I got into wine, thankfully, from from parents who were essentially francophiles, and and um, my father was an academic, my mother uh, was a work at home mom who then had a, a coterie of jobs throughout her life and and so they entertained uh, often, and uh, you know they were the kind of dinners where everyone sits around the table for. A couple hours, and when you're you know eight year old kid, ten year old kid, you're like, oh man, when is this gonna be over? Um, but I, you know, as I grew up, I started to realize like this is this is kind of cool, right? You, you can hang out with the adults, you get to have this adult conversation. They're drinking this cool thing. I'd get the little you know glass like that with a drop of water in it. Yep. Um, and you know, hearing them talk about it and and waxing poetic on, I'm like, well, I, you know, I need to find out more about this. So when I was in college, I was the guy in the frat who was drinking the wine when everyone else was drinking the beer. You know, kind of helped you know on the dating scene a little I was bit. Say, yeah. So, 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 it's, just it's all so part of know, the plan. Yeah, you know. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> James. They, so, <clears throat> a movie for you to watch, man. If you can find, I don't know where it's at. I bought it like when block when Blockbuster years ago. Yeah. I mean, like, now you're dating yourself. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I, hey, I used to go to Blockbuster. Yeah, you know, I look good for my age. I'm all, I'm all, I'm okay <laughs> with it, man. Um, it's called The Gristle, and it, The Gristle is a movie. It was actually the first movie, and might still be the only movie where the it's an independent film, and it, it's an uh, African American 
director mm -hmm. and he financed it. He got an SBA loan. He like filled out the, you know, like he, he found a loophole and he got $25,000. He made this movie. It's called The Gristle. It's, it's, it's funny. It's a comedy. It's hilarious. Fine if you can. Okay. Um, I'm a movie buff and I haven't heard that. Yeah. I'm going to go write yeah. it down. But you remind me of this character in there and the character in the movie is called Smooth White Boy. <laughs> <laughs> and so like, you went. You say you. So you're in college. You're, you're you know you're in the frat house, and you're like, hey, I've got this uh, mouton. <laughs> Actually, it wasn't a mouton when I was in college because I was on the college you know budget. I was drinking a lot of Guinoc Petit Syrah. Guinoc, but that's a good bottle. You know, that's a was, good play. Which wow, nine ninety nine back then, yeah. and that hit the sweet spot. And uh, so you went to where? You went to. I went to UMass Amherst. Okay. You know, in Western Mass. Yeah. And Pioneer uh, Valley. Pioneer Valley, yeah. And I had a great time there. Um, and How could you not? So we're going to get into it. See, so I, that's where I, I would have went to school in the Pioneer Valley because yeah. I have okay. a friend who um, was the president of Hampshire College sure. for 19 years. And part of the at five the, college, college consortium. consortium. Yeah. Right. So, Smooth White Boy, did yeah. you take classes at Smith just <laughs> to be around girls? I did not take classes at Smith, uh. but I did go. <laughs> Visit Smith on several occasions, yes. Yeah. Uh, along with Holyoke and Amherst and, and yeah. Nature, yeah. And so it's, it's like for all you, you know, you, you kids can't be listening to this. But uh, <laughs> if you happen to be 21 and, you, and you're not in college, go go to the, the five college in Scorsham. Because yeah. they have a, they've got a whole bus system. Yeah, no, it was, it was a great Go time. around, like, you know. So, and Gwinnock Petit Sarat. Why Petit Sarat? Because I love Petit Sarat. I, I think, it, you know, it hit the price point. I, I, you know, it was something I saw on the wine rack. With my parents, so you know, okay. that, and then obviously it was like maximum fruit impact on, mm -hmm. on for a sip. So you know, it was it was a, a way to get introduced to wine uh, easily uh, in that time. And then um, when I got out of college, I I went back home. I was living with my parents for a couple of weeks, and after a couple of weeks, I said this cannot continue. <laughs> I got to get a job. Uh, my my degree did nothing for me. I had an anthropology and Afro American studies uh, degree, which. That and $2 gets you on the subway, as they say. So I answered a job uh, listing in the paper back then when you had to look at wow. jobs in the, in the help wanted that. section you know, uh, at a wine retailer called Burgundy Wine Company. Um, and my dad, who taught at Queens College, he was colleagues with Steve Tanzer's wife. Okay. And so he got a letter of recommendation for me from Steve Tanzer. So I walked into this wine shop knowing, knowing anything about anything and handed this letter of recommendation over to the owner. He kind of looks at it and looks at me and he's like, who are you? Like, how do you get, like, this is for a stock boy position. You got a letter of recommendation from Steve Tanzer. Um, so I got the job, and that was just, uh, the rest is history. But it was a great experience there. The, the store was very tiny, specialized in, in burgundy only. Yeah. Um, there was the owner, the manager, and myself. And uh, every day, the manager would cook lunch in the office on a hot plate, which was pretty amazing. And being 21 and making $20,000 a year, I was happy to have the free lunch. Oh, yeah. Uh, and he would, the owner would go down to the basement. He'd come up with a bottle in a bag. He'd pour it out, and he'd say, tell me about it. And I did that every day for three years. Basically learned how to taste blind that way, and I learned on Burgundy first, which is arguably the most confusing area. Oh. And then everything else fell into place. I left from there. I went to the 21 Club. I was a sommelier uh, there for a year and did not dig that much. I'm not cut out for restaurant work. Again, I tip my hat to those people. Uh, that's, yeah. that, that would be the job that I would say I don't want to do. Right. Uh, but I had done it, done it, so I couldn't answer that question before. And, um, and then I got lucky. I bumped into an old friend uh, who was already at Wine Spectator at that point. He said, what are you doing? I said, I'm, I'm working nights and opening wine. He said, how do you like to work days and open wine for the, the tasters at Wine Spectator? And I said, sold. Damn. And I've been there almost 25 years now. Shit. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm never uh, 25 years in one place. Good for you. I love that. Okay, so Stephen Tanzer, what was it, International Wine Report? You said? International, 
Yeah. International Wine. wine. Something. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. IWC. International International Wine wine Cellar. I think it was. International Wine Cellar. IWC. Yeah, I think think that's what it was. Yeah. And he's with, who's he with now? He sold uh, his... Database of notes, essentially, to Galoni, I believe. I'm not sure okay, what that's right, Steve right. is doing now. Yeah, sometimes I see some of the stuff show up on yeah. Venuous somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Um, just because there's probably there's I have a there's probably some people like who's Steve Tanzer? Yeah, uh, you know I know who he is. That's yeah. pretty cool. I met him at a tasting. At, I I worked at Acker. Um, yeah. And I I didn't have you know same thing. I was like you're gonna drink the finest wines in the world on a nightly basis, and they have the wine workshop, and I worked. 12 hours in the store and then I'd go pour right. for the wine workshop get a taste of wines right. but I, I love your story about like you got really like a total you got the food and wine experience like you're, the owner's cooking like that's yeah, that's right. like so European like right. th- like the siesta like we, full we, lunch we pour, break yeah, yeah full right. lunch yeah. break yeah. And, and then wine and then burgundy is you know burgundy is you know what burgundy is yeah. I, I mean it's I love Burgundy, but I tell people it's just so much easier to drink California Pinot and Oregon Pinot because it's just it's. Well, what's the old expression of uh, the of the ten greatest wines I, uh, uh, ten greatest wine disappointments I ever had? Nine were Burgundy. Well, that's the thing. And of too. the ten greatest wines I had, five were Burgundy. Exactly. So it's like you know, it's you're, you're constantly fighting with it. And 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 it's and because there's 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 such small plots, like it's that shit's expensive, man. Yeah. It's not like it's not for the average person. Like you, if you if you know producers. You know, even a Burgoy- a good Burgoyne is 40, 50 bucks, right? Like, so for yeah, most these people, days, I mean, they're yeah. fifty bucks, which is kind of crazy, right? But so for for most people, they're not they're never really going to get to try those wines. Yeah. So it's it's really it's really cool that you that you came in the gate blind tasting Burgundy, yeah. and then and then the Somali. Like, what do you think about like not I don't think about, but like I think it's interesting because I worked at a little place in California. Uh, in Montecito, it's called the Wine Bistro. It's no longer there. It's now a Mexican road mm-hmm. restaurant. So mm-hmm. on Coast Village Road. If you ever been down to Mon- if you ever been down to Santa Barbara, um, and um, you know, I would work in the wine store, and then some nights, busy nights, I'd be the som in the restaurant. Like, but now it's like everybody's a certified som. Before it's just like if you knew wine, you knew how to talk to people, you could sell on the floor. Yeah, uh, it was a very different uh, time for the wine industry then. The, the whole sommelier gestalt culture whatever you want to call, call it had not really blossomed yet uh, and and while some of those organizations may have been around they were not front and center the way they are today right. basically you you fell in with a mentor and and you basically learned at their hip yeah and that's that's yeah. how i learned yeah. um so you know i, I mean I, I was a voracious reader and i read everything i could but basically it was you taste you taste you taste you mm-hmm. taste you taste mm-hmm. you taste you taste you taste and you learn how to describe them and and the key is to taste all the different things um i see a lot of people today focusing on certain things which is well and good and professionally i focus on certain sure, things sure. but i think that it's important to constantly be tasting stuff you've never heard of you, you don't Agreed. know where it's from you don't know anything about it that's the fun that's what got us into this business in the first place and keeping that drive alive is really important yeah i agree i i, I, I dustin wilson was on the show and i told him i said back when i you know back in 99 i was like it was like well if you know wine you don't you don't have to get certified just you know you just keep tasting that that was literally the advice i was like who i didn't know there's gonna be movies about sommeliers and you guys would become rock stars and, and 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 drive the industry for you know and 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 that's the thing even to this day like people are like i know so much wine i said you know how much wine i've tasted in my life you know i, I yeah. just and and i'm and i'm still to this day like I'll buy a bottle. Whatever's funky, I'm going to try it. I'm going to try whatever weird. I'm going to try a Pedro Jimenez from from Latin America. Right. I'm, I'm going to do that. Yeah. Because I, I I want I want to have you know I'm like oh I've had that oh I've had that people are like have you had this one I'm like, yeah I've had it you know right. and and that is that's the ultimate thing and I think <clears throat> one thing and I, I talk about this so you have a lot of people 
who want to be influencers on Instagram and everything, and they might have their Wisset one or two, and I'm like, okay, so you've tasted 18 wines. That's what you're telling me. I don't know how. I don't know which wine you've actually tasted, bro. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know. <laughs> the other thing I think is is really important is I mean I I learned how to taste blind basically naturally um and and that's what we do professionally at wine spectator i think we're the only ones that, that do it that way i think that's really important and that's what i always tell people to do is you should also taste blind consumer or other professional whatever to remove the the bias of who made it and how much it costs is so instructive because then you just focus on what's in the glass and doing that and and combined with you know taste things that either you don't know anything about or you think you don't like Right. Because it's just as important to know why you don't like something as it is to, to understand why you like it. Okay, I don't drink a lot of big, oaky Chardonnays. I like one every now and then from time to time. But I still need to understand what's going mm -hmm. on with them. And mm -hmm. I, I need to taste them every now and then. So I'm never going to turn my nose off or turn my nose up at, at something that, you know, normally I wouldn't drink. Because you're still going to learn something from it. Right, right. Yeah, I, I, I'd say people and, and, yeah, you guys do taste blind, which is, which I see why you do that. Um because ultimately, I mean, the, the, the thing about wine is the story, right? So if you know this is so-and-so's wine and the right. vines are this old, like in your subconscious mind, yeah, it, it, it is going to affect it. I mean, um, we're an independent, you know, third-party consumer uh, advocacy magazine. And so, you know, our ratings matter um, because of that. And then we have to keep that that uh, ethical standard by, by tasting blind, obviously, because we accept advertising in the magazine. But sure. if, we, if we knew what, I mean, there's so many studies that show that if you know what it is, you're, you're just ever so slightly oh, biased. Yeah. And, and so the, when someone says, well, I'm not biased because I tell you I'm not biased and I'm being as honest as I can be, you may believe that. Right. But the reality is, if I, if I show you it's Lafitte, you're going to dig it. And if, you, if you're tasting and you don't know it's Lafitte, you might say, well, there's a little tannic to right, that. I didn't right, know this, right? right so right. removing the context is important, but you also don't want to remove the context entirely. So we, we do know Appalachian and vintage, or in the case of New World Wines, um, varietal and vintage. Those, right. are, those are the two pieces of information we have when we're tasting. Oh, very cool. Very cool. And I think that I – and I dig that. I think um, – I noticed like your scores are, are a little bit lower than a lot of the other uh, publications, the, the, the more prominent – publications you know like so i'm like i'm like oh this 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 white room got a, a 93 from jay's moleworth I'll, I'll try that out or this is south african <laughs> chenin blanc even though i'm like even i'm like because you look at this i look at the scores i'm like yeah like i bought the chenin blanc it was like 60 bucks mm -hmm. you recommend it south it was like 93 points but your notes were on point and i was like and you look at their scores i'm like that's a pretty high score for these guys you yeah know I, mean? I mean i do think we're the toughest um i have never given 100 in print uh i don't think any of my colleagues have recently i mean it's been several years since i think we had 100 in print we've given them out over time uh I think it's important to remember that there's always some place to go. There's always a way to improve. I've never met a winemaker who said, that's the best wine I've ever made. And then the next year they didn't say, you know, actually. <laughs> right. I agree. I agree. I, you know, um, I think even people who get the 100-point scores, they, they don't go out and say, well, I know how to get a 100-point score. They're doing the same work. They're doing right. even different work. They're tweaking it. They're changing the blend. You yeah. know, they're like. Yeah. Uh, this year, that last year was sixty percent cab and 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 twenty percent Malbec. You know, but this yeah. year the Mal, you know, they're they're still working. So you're right. So it, it's. I think there are perfect wines for the moment. Right. When you add emotion into it, and you and you add in other contexts, as you say, the story or who you're with or the anniversary or the the vintage that you're celebrating, all that sort of stuff can have a perfect moment. But viewing it from strictly a consumer perspective, you know, I can't say that something that had the hand of of a human involved in the process is perfect because that doesn't exist i would have to agree it but is. that notwithstanding if i feel a wine is 100 points i will give it i've just never had that experience when i'm sitting there tasting 
right. professionally. Right. I've had moments where I'm like, okay, but that's on the back porch with someone and right, the sun's right, going right, down right, right, and right, right, you know, right, everything, yeah, everything's yeah. copacetic. Totally. It's a different, a different thing. Yeah. It's like, it's very rare. Even like when I would go to industry tastings and, and you know, and like people understand too, like it's also, it's quick. It's not, it's not enjoying the wine per se. Like, it's just like you, you got to make a judgment call. You got, you're, you're seeking out notes. You're seeking, you know, right. it's not like, but like you said, like when you're with the right person at the right time, the right album's on, it's like, fuck, this is especially, delicious. Especially right? when the right yeah, album is yeah, on. Yeah. It's, it's like, oh, this is so fucking delicious. Like yeah. that's, that's when you get like, yeah. oh, all right. Yeah. This wine's and a that's bomb. when you go and you open another bottle. Exactly. And then, then that's a slippery slope. And it is total slippery slope. <laughs> Because then, you know, like there's a point, I tell you, there's a point in the night where like, I call them burner bottles. Like, you know, you ever watch the, uh, the wire, they got the yeah, burner phones, right? right? <laughs> got to have burner bottles, right? Cause like, you don't well, need another $70, $80 bottle of wine. Yeah. You know, you think we do. And like, you're like, oh, this is delicious. That's <laughs> true. You know? Um, and the other thing I, I, I try to do, um, is when I'm tasting is, is, Focus on quality first and, and then style second. There are wines of all different types out there. As I say, big big oaky Chardonnays versus, mm-hmm. you know, steely, minerally Chardonnays. You can have a 95-point big oaky Chardonnay, and you just don't like big oaky Chardonnay. But you have to be able to say, well, that's a terrific wine for that style. 100%. And that's, I think, really important. So, you know, sometimes people say, well, I, I align myself to this this critic or this wine writer, and I think that that is good. But that sometimes a lot, the, a lot of the critics are, are have a very specific palette preference right as long as they're consistent and as long as you see, see that as the consumer fine my approach is a little different it's a little anthropological which is i try to take myself out of the equation i just try to observe and report professor so there, molesworth <laughs> there are wines that are totally different stylistically i give them the same score i might not right. buy it with my own money to right. put in my own cellar but that doesn't mean i can't say that is a terrific example of that type and i think you can just translate that to movies to music to 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 books, right? You know, you don't like westerns, but you have to say, well, John Ford knows how to make a movie. Right. I mean, so there, right. there's, it's just all part of judging in life. You have to take the good, bad, and the ugly was a great western. Yes, and it's a spaghetti western. Right. It's a great it's western. Spaghetti. Yeah, and I, I said I talked about that on another show with another guest. I said, listen, you need to understand, <clears throat> a wine can be it could be a ninety nine point wine, it's varietally correct, mm-hmm. but if you don't like pencil shavings. If you don't like shit dip pencil tips, mm-hmm. if you don't like uh, mushrooms, um, if you don't if you don't like uh, a grainy tannins, but you have to be as your job, like you have to. Be, I, I can say that is spot on from that appellation. I don't want to drink. Like I said, right. you you have to know what I'm. I'm glad it was someone else's dime right. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever. Right. You know, um, you know, I had a I had a ninety five. Cologne cigar, buddy had it. He'd been holding it. It was it was spot on. Not really my type of wine, but mm-hmm. it was delicious. I yeah. like I respected what it was, right. and it was actually too young. I mean, even at ninety five. I mean, so that's that game, and and that's and I and I and also what I like what you said about um, if you are going to go with scores, you know. Um, and I think I I don't have a problem with scores. I think they give you a baseline. I think you have to read and you have to do your own research. You have to know, does my palate align with this person's palate, right? So, right. you know, you guys have a different panel taster. So um, people have to, you know, say, do I like this wine? You know, whose palate do I like? You know, blah, blah, blah. But it is it is considering that. And I think what you guys do, what, what all critics do is kind of give a guide and give people. Exactly. You, we, we want educated consumers. Right. We love to tell the story. 
we love to support family-owned wineries. That's basically our, our, our edict um, and, and get the information out there. But, you know, our, our, our mantra is to educate and entertain. So we want people to make an educated decision about something that they're going to be spending some money on and also give them the story behind it because there's a lot of wineries out there that have a terrific story. They're wonderful people. They work hard. But they don't have the time to tell their story to every no, they, consumer out there. They're, and, they're farmers. Most yeah, of them, I farmers. mean, they're, they're, they're like, I remember when I met Gary Pisoni like in 1999. He's like, I'm a farmer, man. Yeah. He's like, you know, they, they don't know marketing. They're, they're like, he's like a third generation farmer. Right. Like you said, he's growing asparagus and broccoli and other stuff. And then up on a mountain, he's got grapes, right? right. Um so, yeah, but I think I mean scores are here to stay, and I think oh, the yeah. quality. When I say quality scores, the ones that readers can can rely on, as you say, you bought the wine and the note was spot on, and right. and so you know, for you the score was low, but you appreciate that because you know it means that we're tough. Right. So that's that just made my day. Yeah. yeah. No, it was good, man. I was like, it was good. It was very good. Um, and you know, so I think we also have this in common, like music and wine. I mean. Let's talk vinyl, baby. Yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a hopeless romantic, uh, stuck in the past. Are you a cancer? What's your sign? Uh, I'm a Libra. A Libra. Oh, yeah. it's Libra season. Yeah, and so <laughs> we're, I'm shining right now. Uh, it's my time. Yes, um, time to shine. But yeah, music and and wine. I mean, I, I I couldn't give up. If I had to give up one, I would give up wine. I couldn't give up music. I yeah, agree. Yeah. I um, agree. I mean, music is life. But I mean, so like you have a pretty. You know, I, I follow you on Instagram. Is how I found you. Um, you have a pretty intense wine, uh, wine and well, vinyl collection. How many? About how many records? You how many vinyl records? You have? Uh, approximately about fourteen hundred. It's it's a modest collection. There's there's, it's not professional DJ level. Oh, but. That's a lot of records, bro. I don't, first of all, there's very few DJs who have that many records now. They're they're called turntablists, and they use a computer. Yeah, <laughs> which I, I don't. Ah, Whenever I walk exactly. in to see that, I'm like, yeah, yeah, ah. <laughs> yeah. I thought I was dope. My little yeah. 600 records. Yeah. You put me to shame. No, I, I mean I still DJ a little bit with with records, <laughs> but it's not the kind of DJing that's that's popular today. I'm not. I actually let the whole song play. No, yeah. I, I, yeah, no. There was a, there was this guy, and I, and I do it on a, on a record, and I cue it up, and you know, it's, yeah, it's curated music, is what I do. Yeah. I love that. I there was there was this um, spot in Santa Barbara. I can't remember the name because I used to drink so much back then. <laughs> I was in my thirties, um, but they would have this DJ, and his name was Manabu, and and he he would come in and he had two turnouts, but he would play the whole record. Like he right. would play the original that's so, that the hip hop people right. would sample. I love to play and the original and exactly, then play the yeah, sample one. Man. And I'll look out in the room and I'll see people go, hey, wait yeah, a yeah, minute. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Like, There's always a, an original. Exactly. You need to know the original. Yeah. Right. And so I would just go and just chill out and I'd be like geeking out next to him like, oh man, that was gangster. Oh, he's yeah. like, and, and I was like, dude, I love what you're doing here. Yeah. And it was, and it was, it was, it was more of a, like you said, um, how'd you describe that again? Uh, it was like, what you mean when I look yeah. out and see people in your No, office? no, yeah, uh, when you when you play the record, like what what, what, what Oh curated music. Curated yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Right. yeah. yeah. It, was, it was like it was just a beautiful curated Yeah. Well, cuz I I did radio. When I was in college I had a radio show. Uh, and so that's that's where I fell in love with it. That's where I did the deep dive. That's where I got my love for jazz and blues. I had a jazz show uh, on the radio. What was the name of your jazz show? The Wailing Interval, which was named for the uh, Paul Gonzalez solo on Diminuendo and Crescendo in Blue that Duke Ellington played at the Newport Jazz Festival in the 1940s that basically put the crowd into a riot. Uh, it's like 32 choruses. It's this long solo. He basically just goes off. 
And like, you can hear on the recording, the crowd is like starting to get wild. And there's a legend that the, the police officer or security or whoever comes up to Ellington on the bandstand. is like, yo, man, you got to make him stop. They're going crazy out there. And Ellington turns to him and says, if I make him stop, they're going to really go crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so the Wailing Interval, it was, a, it was a blast. And and it was part of that college experience, too, which was classic because the first two years I went, I partied. And I had like a 1.8 GPA or something, right? I was about to flunk out. My parents said, hey. Um, and your dad is a was an was academic college, college yeah, professor. Yeah. So basically He's they said, so look, proud of you. he was not proud of me. He said, we do not pay for failure. So from this point on, you can either succeed or you can pay your own way through college. So that obviously wasn't going to work. So I, I succeeded from that point on and, and dove into uh, the college radio, the college newspaper, the college uh, student government. I picked up the AFRAM minor. Like I just, I, I just went whole hog into the academic thing and, and loved it. And on staff there was Archie Shep and Youssef Latif and Max Roach. Um, which, you know, for a young kid learning jazz, like these guys are still alive and they're at my college. Oh my God. So yeah. that was just really intense. And that's where that love came from. Yeah. I used to hang out with Max Roach's daughter. Uh, she went to Wesleyan and I dated a bunch of chicks from Wesleyan. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, cool dude. Yeah. yeah small yeah. world. But yeah. so, what I love about your show was like, it was so specific. It was about this one <laughs> riff in a show at the Newport. Yeah. It wasn't yeah. just like, I just called it the Smooth White Boy Show. <laughs> Smooth White Boy Jazz Show. Hi, I'm James Molesworth from New York City. <laughs> but that's even, like, he blew me away with that one. See, this guy. And But when you, when you say that, it, it makes so much sense that you do what you do now. Like, your, your approach. It's yeah, like your I mean, approach to life is very... It's how my brain works. If I, I, once I find something I like, I'm going to have to drill down deep and find out everything I can about it. And, you know, when I was a kid, I knew every baseball stat. And I, I bought the baseball encyclopedia, which was a book like literally that big. Yeah. And I used to just, just flip through and read it. And then it became baseball cards and it was comic books. And then it became, you know, music and records and then wine. And so just that, the way the, my mind works, I just kind of absorb it and deep dive it and just get a little manic with it yeah no i i i, I kind of do that i'm i like to get to empirical sources and i kind of like i like go down rabbit holes so i totally understand that and like for, for instance like I, I ran track and field and there used to be a magazine magazines are dying so glad you guys are still around by the way i know you do you guys We're do a great well. job with the digital digital <laughs> yeah but you also it's nice to go to the nah, whole foods and see the print you know yep. the cover um, but there was this magazine called Track and Field News, and then they had this thing called the Track and Field Newsletter. So Track and Field News came out monthly, but they they would just send out. It was like it would literally they would mail you, fold it up. It was just like all the times from the track meets that week, and I was that geek. Like I knew every freaking world record right. from 100 meters to the marathon. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, so that's what kind of way my brain works too. So when I got into wine, I was like, Oh my God, I didn't know why I was Oh my, you're like, Oh my, this, this clone and that clone in the soil and, 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 and the sun exposure. So it just like, for me, like it just allowed, cause I like in school, I, I would say, I wouldn't say I was a know-it-all, but like school's boring. Let's be honest. School's kind of boring, right? Like you got to have stuff you're yeah. passionate about that you're going to want to research and dive into. Right. And so like, I love having things like that. Like, you know, and like, also at music like oh you know this side project you know like oh you know like like what's like, like what's your um what's your what's like your favorite which is hard because you have fortune but like like what what do you like what would you say like i'm always enthralled by side projects you get side projects and wine right. 
you get side projects and music. You get people who do jam sessions and 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 they, they have these crazy like this is time Diz and Max and and, 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 and you know got together like what's like your craziest kind of like mashup there like your 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 and with, with jazz. Or, I mean the, the the one album that always fascinates me is Money Jungle, which is uh, Duke Ellington, Max Rocha, and Charles Mingus, and uh, the three of them never recorded other than that one time, um, <clears throat> and and to have a a, a trio uh, without the horn I think is always fascinating with their classic rhythm section set up uh, and three disparate players I mean Ellington was a totally melodic you know stretch out Mingus and 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 was a bit more frenetic in mm -hmm. his playing mm -hmm. uh, um, and and Max was you know just a I mean the polyrhythm off of Max Roach's drum set is just kind of like a thing in and of itself um, so you got these three maestros who undoubtedly had egos of their own coming together and then they've got to share space and they did it um, although there is also a fascinating story about that session where after a couple of tunes, Mingus apparently like gets up and storms out of the room <laughs> in a sense of like, like, you know, I can't do this. Right. And the reaction was like, well, he thinks he's too big for this. And in reality, what he was saying, like, I can't play with this cat Ellington. He's, he's, he's too good. He's, he's too good. Right. Like, he was doing it as an homage and Ellington, you know, walked down the hallway and got him at the elevator and said, Hey, come on, Matt, let's finish the gig. And they finished. And that's, it's a beautiful uh, album, Money Jungle. Nice. That will be in the show notes. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, yeah, and then like, you know, I mean, to me, I, I love reading liner notes on these old albums. Oh yeah. Some some of them are so dated in their way, but you know, you get you get these little snippets of information, and 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 to me, the liner notes are basically like reading tasting notes because they give you information right. that you might not pick up on, and and it just enhances your enjoyment of it. And so that's, you know, I I think the note. The tasting note part of wine is as important. It's more important than the score. The score is, of course, important because oh, that's, yeah, the, no, that's the, the notes, snapshot. Yeah, but right, the note, because right. you have to read it and understand, right. you know, is this an old school wine? Is this a fruit bomb wine? What, right. You know, what's going on here? And, and you know, to me, they're, they're the same liner notes and tasting notes. They give you that little, you know, pinpoint bits of information that make it that much more enjoyable. Oh, that's a great analogy, man. And, I, and you know, that's what I love. And that's what I love about vinyl. People don't get like vinyl was a whole package, right? The album art. The album, you t take the... The shrink wrap yeah, off, exactly right, right. it's the a gatefold you the open gatefold, that one up, yeah the but... gatefold even if it was yeah. even if it was one album it's right. got a gatefold there's a picture inside and then you pull out you pull out you pull it out and then i love all the old atlantic records like i have a lot of funk r&b yeah. stuff yeah. and like like on the you know on the back it has like all the albums they're trying to sell you know what I mean like yeah. like it was like it was like it was like a yeah. different era versus and then with cd's it was small so the art was still there but now you got like this little box on your little yeah, MP3. Right. That's not right. And 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 kids don't understand. You kids do not understand live music. Like I remember, there's a there's a there's a point in Green Onions where the drummer's drum just scrapes across his microphone, mm -hmm. and like that's part of like it's like right. it's breathing. It's like alive, right? right? Which is like wine. Wine is breathing. It's alive. It's a living thing. It's growing. You know. So. Yeah, definitely there's that there's that total crossover so like what's your like so i know you you're you're a roan i mean well i know you cover the roan you cover bordeaux you cover yeah, right. you cover uh california cabernet this is hard but if you had to like what's like like what's your what's your shit what's your what's your jam what like like what I mean, the roan is where my heart is and that's uh i mean that seed was planted very early on i was eight years old traveling with my dad through the roan Again, no clue of what I was going to do. Right, um, eight year old kid. But there was just something that got planted that day um, in that region, and I've always been in love with the Rhone. So when I got to cover the Rhone professionally, 
I mean, first off, I was super stoked, but then I also realized, well, I need, I need to back this up a little bit. I cannot go in this as a rah-rah. Mm-hmm. I love everything just because I love the Roan. I have to be twice as hard on myself and, and critical in my approach to it so that I didn't get to be a rah-rah. And then, you know, Bordeaux, I have tremendous respect for Bordeaux. I do love those wines. And, <clears throat> I'm, I've, you know, I, I started on California before I started on France as a consumer, so I, my heart has a bit of itself in California as well, so to do Cabernet. Um, but, you know, outside of what I cover, and I'm glad that I like the regions I cover because it keeps them yeah. fresh and interesting for me, but I drink a lot of champagne. Uh, I still drink a fair amount of Riesling. Um, I love uh, Nebbiolo. I don't, you know, delve into it that deep. I mean, I spend so much time on what I cover that I don't get to really go deep on yeah, other, I mean, other, other areas. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be hard. Yeah. <laughs> really, um, people don't understand. Like, I'm not joking. Like, it's got to be hard when you're tasting thousands of wines you know yeah to uh you know nebbiolo is interesting it's it's good but i never can really get into it i mean it's good it's beautiful it's beautiful stuff you know um but i can see you know i the wine country i lived in was california so i love california central coast yep a lot of rhone stuff um i love the rhone i mean the bottle like what was the bottle so you're eight years old you're traveling your parents were they were francophiles. They yeah. love France. Right. So, did you, did you go often, or just was this one? Was it was the eight no, year old? Were, was it telling trip? Or yeah, no. My parents traveled a lot um, when I was growing up. So, and and we were often in Europe. It was usually England or, or France. Uh, I've been to Italy once or any twice, any but, relatives over there, or just no. But um, but a lot of travel, and okay. uh, and you know, I'm 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 very lucky for that form of education. Uh, it's the best. Yeah. I kind of work my day job. I right now work with kids and exposure. That's people don't get its exposure. Yeah, is the biggest educator right you know um so that's really I, and, and i love that you're grateful for it. like you don't take it for granted man no and and you know prior to covid i, I used to tell people i treat every wine trip for work as if it's going to be my last trip because I, I honestly don't know will i get back here of course right. i think well, I mean, i'm going I mean, to a plane planes crash yeah i mean, I mean this stuff happens I, right i'm stuffing everything i can into every trip to to max it out and and you know now here i've gone almost a year without traveling overseas and i don't know when i'm going to get back because it's not even allowed for all intents and yeah, purposes we're, right we're, now. We are, we are, we are we're, yeah. nation non grata. <laughs> so, I, I by mean, the way, we're living, I didn't know what's going to go there, but we actually are in prison right now. We cannot leave. Yeah. People don't get, we can't Canada leave. Canada won't take Canada, us. I mean, we, take yeah, it. we can't leave. Like you need to. And it's frustrating because we're in New York, which has, you know, the lowest, one of the lowest rates in the 50 states. Yeah. And so, but I, I mean, I understand. Totally. This I mean, yeah. Situation, but for me not to travel to Europe, I, I'm just sort of like, I, I'm very frustrated. I, mean, I'm, it's, I can only imagine, <laughs> man. Like you've been doing this for like twenty yeah. some odd years. Like, yeah, that's and, not. That's not like. And now everyone wants to do something on Zoom, and and I gotta tell you, I'm calling bullshit on the Zoom. Oh, virtual, I don't. Virtual tastings. I mean, I, I that's people, why we're here in the studio, bro. Yeah. Pe- pe- <laughs> yes. People have to sell their wine. The information needs to get out. The job needs to get done. Yep. But I'm not gonna sit there on a Zoom while someone else drinks the other bottle three thousand miles away and have some real conversation right. about that bottle because we don't gonna, know because it's, it's not the same bottle it's not the same bottle it's not, it's not the not, same yeah yeah it's not the same experience it's not it's just it's sterile it's sterilized it really the whole <clears throat> aspect that makes wine interesting and fun it takes all the energy out of it I'm, I'm just so i mean i've been trying to double up on going to california which has had its own logistical problems because they had you know a second wave and, yep. and there yep. was quarantine when i came back a couple times and and that but i've been going out there more often i'm going out again uh, at the end of this week and so I'm, I'm counting my lucky stars that at least i can i can get there yeah no i hear you on this i mean it's it's um it's not the same that wine was having a meal opening a bottle having a conversation like we're having now and that doesn't happen it doesn't translate through the through the screen and and like you said you hit people i get it people need to sell wine i love it you know um i understand it 
But um, like when we started this, like I didn't know what I was doing. I got a producer. It was great. I found a producer. And she's like, you need to go into a studio like if you want to have a real show. And so I'm grateful that you're here because this is a different experience. Like, I, I you know, I could have called you. We could have done an Instagram live. and But like it wouldn't be like, you're like, oh, OK, I kind of like this MJ guy. He's, he's kind of funny. He's not a dick. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, <clears throat> so, you know, um, you've had a lot of success in wine. Like just hearing what your story, you know. No, I'm 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 lucky. I mean, the the people who are, I mean, the wine industry is full of people of passion who get right. to do what they want. But I mean, I really get to do what I want, and and I'm lucky that the magazine has the resources to let me go do it in a way where you know we we don't accept junkets, we don't accept travel assistance. When I go, I set my own schedule. We pay our own way. We do our own thing. Uh, you know, I don't do paid followers on Instagram. I don't I don't do any of that stuff. It's just as pure and monastic as it can be. I love it. I love and it. I, and I and I dig it. I love it. That's what we're building here too. Like I, I got, I got my, I just got the five thousand followers, and it's mm -hmm. legit. It's true. I mean, I've studied internet marketing, and I know I can get in pods and right. I can go buy followers. Right. But I don't want. That's not who I am. Never who was who, yeah. who I am. And if people, if you like, if you're down with the black wine guy experience, you are. If yeah. you're not, you're not, and it's right. all good because I know what I'm doing, and we're having a good time, and I get to talk to people like you. Yeah. But with all that success, was there ever a point where you like you thought you might walk away? I mean, there's been. Periods in my career, if you want to call it that, that I, I was either bored or frustrated. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've been lucky along the line that uh, every few years I was given a new responsibility that, that sort of you know broadened uh, what I was doing. And at this point, I'm now I'm maxed out. So <laughs> I hope I don't get any more new responsibilities. Uh, I mean, my plate is, is full. Um, but there's been I mean, I think we all have some self-questioning at some point and it usually happens right between the age of 39 and 41 i think <laughs> somewhere in there where we start to go what the hell am i did doing did you buy a porsche james <laughs> i did not buy a car no i just bought more records okay a lot more records um, a lot more wine um but yeah you know there's been but uh, no i i mean my path has been um fairly easy in that regard i will say that i've earned what i what i've accomplished um but um I know that there are other people in the industry who have not had the uh, access to uh, things the way that I have, and I'm grateful for that. And I think, you know, the events of this past year have, have opened a lot of eyes in the industry, which is pretty white, um, and we're aware of that. And we need to do a better job about that. Um, we have tried, and we will continue to try at Wine Spectator to be uh, more inclusive and to represent the industry in a more inclusive way. Um, I th hope people are seeing some of the subtle changes that are you know, starting to permeate through the magazine's coverage. Uh, we're committed to that. I think the industry is having a bit of a, a self-analysis period, too. Um, and, I, you know, I, I will be the first to admit that I was not aware of a lot of things in the industry, and I have not seen things that other people have seen. Um, so I, I need to be more aware of what's going on out there. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I actually did a video the other day just talking about, uh, like, how much we delete we don't even see. So I, I think I think in wine, it's great that people are becoming more aware. I, I don't necessarily think um, I think it was a lot of blind spots, like you said. Yeah. You know, I don't think there's certain industries where it's like blatant racism. I think wine just had these blind spots. Yes. You know, and it's good that people are now saying, oh, holy shit. I didn't I didn't I didn't know. I didn't see. You know? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's fascinating to me is the language of wine. 
and it's very steeped in European tradition. We use French or, or Italian winemaking terms interchangeably, uh, you know, when we're speaking in English. We talk about batonnage and, and you know, th these types of things. Terroir. And, and terroir. And, and to understand that there are people out there who have never had that experience. Right. So when we're talking to them, we might as well be talking in a foreign language, which, right. in essence, we are. Right. And we need to be aware of that. And that there is, in fact, other people who have developed their own language for wine, which is terrific and fascinating. And I need to know how they speak about wine and how they describe it because invariably there's there's common ground because right. we're talking about the same thing right, right. or we're describing it in different ways and I, that to me is, is fascinating. I got your back on that, man. Right. I got you. Yeah. I got you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, and that's, that's I, I but, love you know, it. I mean, the culture, the food. Right. Right. We, we think that, you know, Bordeaux has to be drunk with, with French food. Well, why can't it be drunk with barbecue or, like, you, you know, things like this? There's uh, few, few things better than Bordeaux and a burger. <laughs> yeah. I know, I know, I know, I see you keep it trimmed. I, I'm I, trying, but, but it's like, not easy in COVID. It's but. not, man. Listen, I put on 10 pounds with COVID. Now I have a good scale. My scale says my body fat's the same, which is actually more important, but I'm just not used to weighing this much, to yeah. be honest, you know, yeah, and yeah. I, literally for my job, not as cool as, no, nowhere near as cool as sure. It's not going to, <laughs> going to France and hanging out with Shav. <laughs> You know, that, that man can cook and his wife, Erin, is an absurd cook, too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I usually clear that day when I when Yeah. I but but I used to travel for work and like just like I'm like, I just I, I just don't move as much. Yeah. I still do my same work. I just don't move as much, you know. So no, no, yeah, doing the same workout in your apartment is not the same. No, it's very frustrating. Well, I work out at home, but yeah. so I've, I've been lucky. I, I figured that out because I'm um, just. The, if, like friction, like if you have to drive to a gym, 10 or 20, like there, but I don't live in a city like you do. So mm -hmm. everything's fun in the city, walking to the gym, blah, 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 you know, and you're probably listening, you know, um, you got your AirPods, you're probably listening <laughs> to some cool jazz. You're looking at the ladies walking down the street on the way to the gym, like, oh, yeah, James is holding it, you know, that's a different experience, man. So, um, well, let me ask you this what, what, uh, What's like your what 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 bottle of wine fucked you up? What knocked your socks off, man? What like like I, you drink a lot of wine, but everybody who loves wine, there's a bottle of wine. Yeah, like, there's Whoa. that epiphany moment. Yeah. Um, I mean, the epiphany moment for me was um, it was at Burgundy Wine Company, and you know sometimes he would the owner would bring up more than one bottle. So this was a day where don't you hate it when they do that? Yeah. So he brought up two bottles side by side, and the first one I had was like, okay, you know, this is good, you know whatever and the second bottle I was like wait what <laughs> and the first bottle I went back to and I was like well this is just grape juice like, <laughs> and the second one I was like you know the sparks went off yeah. the, I saw all the details and the this and the that and, and something clicked the, the gut instinct clicked and I said well that tastes like a Clos Bez or a Grand Cru from Jerry Chambertin and I don't even know what this is anymore like I, right. it seemed fine on its own but now in what is this crap what is this I don't want to say that but I'm like and he pulls the bag off, and it's a Clos de Bez and a Beaujolais Nouveau, which is, you know, the A to Z, right, of the wine hierarchy. Yeah. But it's kind of funny when all of a sudden you're like, oh, now, now you see the two data points at the same time. You get it, all right? You were blind, so you had no, no right. clue, right? You couldn't put any additional context on. You just had to focus on what's in the glass, and now you get it. And you're right. like, oh, okay. Now I see why people are chasing this one down. Now I see why there's only 200 cases of this. Now I get it. I still can't afford it, right? right? But right. now I can appreciate it, and I see the scale. And that's why I tell people, you know, that 
you learn wine with data points and you start mm-hmm. here and then you add one and so this one's here and then this one's here and, and it's like a bookshelf right but it's also uh, you know infinite so it's constantly expanding and growing the data points might be closer together the right. more you have you know if you have 100 cabernets versus 1000 cabernets right those data points get closer but you have more data points and the bookshelf gets bigger and bigger and bigger and that's fascinating and that was the day where i'm like ah okay there's a lot to learn here right right and 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 just talking with you for this time like your mind like ah like you know and 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 i tell people all the time i'm like i'm able to revert i call i'm able to reverse engineer wines because i've had some of the best wines in the world Mm. you know um when you guys came out with your in 1999 i remember the the top 10 wines of the century Mm. i had been in the wine business like two years i had eight of the 10 wines because of where I worked, right? So, so like, you know, I'm like, oh shit, I can work, I can work backwards and you're right. So once you have those data points and you can begin to put it together, I I could see you being there. Like you said, this is like grape juice, right? Like it's a total, 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 like Chappelle, Tyrone Wiggum's moment. Like, like, what is this Beaujolais Nouveau? Yeah. We call it grape drink. It's purple, (laughs) you know, like Beaujolais. And I tell people though, but you got to get George DeBuff saved that region. So now you have, The Cru Beaujolais, that is the the like, darling yeah. of, of the Somalis because because they weren't selling wine. So he came up with this label and he said, we're going to sell this juice for seven bucks and we're going to make a big deal out of it. And we're going to take it to New York and we're going to yep. have a party. Right. Same thing with White Zinfandel. Saved, you know, unfortunately, I wish White Zinfandel had saved more of those old vines. I know you're a cab guy, but. Yeah. It, Zin, did, it did to some extent. Charbonneau. But not, yeah, right. you, you know the history. Now, yeah. There's some, like, you know. But I, look, I still like Beaujolais Nouveau Day. I mean, okay, it's kitschy and it's cliched, right, right. and but you know, the, when I see a psalm roll their eyes, oh man, it's nouveau. Everyone's gonna be coming in and asking for nouveau. That's a good problem to have. Yeah, listen, right? you're, selling you wine, you're selling wine, buddy. People are walking in your store, <laughs> right? And then that's your teaching moment point, right? right? right. Sell them their bottle of nouveau and right. say, by the way, when you come back next time, I'm gonna take you up the next level. Exactly. And, and then you know, make exactly. a customer that way. Yeah. No, there's no, there's no, there's no bad wine. I mean, there's wines you may not want to drink, and there's flawed wines. That's why I said the reality right, is right, there's right. no bad region. There's no. Right. I mean, wine around the world is so diverse and so much better than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. It's it's limitless at this point. You will never be able to get to it all. Yeah, and that's that's what I messed me up, and I love about wine. Like it's just never ending because there's always because it's like, oh, but wait. They make wine in Alaska. How the hell do they make wine in Alaska? If someone will find a way, uh, or they make wine in Antarctica. It's the best ice wine in the world. I mean, people will find a freaking way, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, where is a, is there a wine region you'd like to visit that you haven't visited? Yeah, in fact, there's many wine regions I have not visited. People think I've been everywhere because right. of what I do, but the reality is I'm in the places that I cover over and over right. and over again. Right. Uh, I mean, I'd love to go to Australia and see the Barossa. I mean, um, I'd love to go to Germany and see the Mosul. I mean, there's spots that I just would love to see. Um, you know, some of the areas that I have been to uh, in, in Spain and Portugal and South Africa, I mean, again, I count my blessings because I saw some amazing stuff uh, and got to travel wide and far for that. But there's plenty of places I haven't gotten to yet. If you go to Australia, I got a guy down okay. in Australia. He okay. got, he he actually hook, um, hook me up. Yeah, no, he okay. he's he's. Uh, I've been talking with him, and he deals with like so many people who their wine isn't even imported here, and like and and right. uh, yeah. So I, I can get you the and get you what you're looking for. Yeah, I mean the 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 local culture of a a wine region outside of this country is always just fascinating to me on every level. Um, you know, whether it was Mendoza or or being in Portugal in, in Porto and seeing all the wines on the list that never make it over here and just all those indigenous varietal whites that are delicious with their food mm-hmm. in that setting at that time. Again, right. like it's the perfect moment. It's a $20 bottle of white from a grape you've never heard of. 
in reality, it's probably going to score, you know, somewhere between 88 and 92. Mm-hmm. But at that moment, with that piece of fish sitting in Portugal, it's a 100-pointer. And that's a, it's a terrific experience. Totally. Totally get that. I mean, even that was my experience when I moved to California. People don't realize how much wine in California doesn't even make it to New York. Like, you know, they have no yeah. idea. Yeah. You know? And so imagine, like you said, Portugal or Argentina around the world. And that reminds me of the story, like, like first time I had Albarino. I hadn't had Albarino. First time I had Albarino. Um, the retailer, he was really into Spanish wines and I was working, I just started working for him. He's like, oh, the first time he's like, I remember having this wine. We were, we were, we were 500 meters above sea level on a bluff and we had sardines with Albion. It was perfect. Like, so that's what really, like you said, place, time, food, company, that is, you know, really what can pull it all together. So, um, man, dude. This has been really fun. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. It's always nice to, especially in these <laughs> these days, to actually sit down with someone and talk. <laughs> um, so yeah, like so. <clears throat> where let's let's. Uh, I'll just ask you one more. I'll have a couple more questions because you're so you're you're very fascinating. I haven't had any bad guests, but you're super. Bad. Um, so you love music, live music. You a live music fan? Yeah, oh yeah, sure. Best live show you've been to? Oof. That's a tough one. I mean, it's it's. Uh, I mean, I saw Elvin Jones in a small club up in Northampton, Massachusetts. Which one, Iron Horse? Uh, no, it was the. Oh man, I'm I'm brain farting on the name. It was the it was this. They had a regular jazz night there, though. Okay. Maybe it was the Iron Horse. The Iron Horse Cafe. Yeah, Iron Horse Cafe. And you winked in the band. Yeah, the, it's in Northampton. It's got to be. It's got to be Iron Horse. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I saw Elvin Jones there, and I got a record autographed by him at the time. And I just remember being blown away because you know that's the that's John Coltrane's drummer, and you know <laughs> here he is just basically tearing fucking place up. Right, right, right. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> With you know three cats in front of him, we're like, right. we're gonna stay out of your way, Mr. Jones. <laughs> um, and I was just, I mean, the energy of that guy, and he, and to realize. Essentially, he's doing that every single night somewhere else. It's just like, oh, that's a fascinating character. Um, so, yeah, that would be the, the one that made the most impression on me. Because I was also at a very impressionable time. I was, you know, whatever, 20 years old or something. I was just getting into it, and there's a legend in front of me. Um, but, uh, you know, when I can, I like to go to the Vanguard. I like small the small, small settings. Yeah, me I mean, too. I've, been, I've, been on a, I've seen stuff on a big stage, and it can be impressive. But I like that small setting. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm... I'm same, you know, like, like I, like my wife and I, we saw Lenny Kravitz at Webster Hall. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to see him at Giant Stadium. I want right. to see him at, like, right. but even better than that, like, like, I'm not as do- I'm not as dope as Smooth White Boy. I mean, I saw, <laughs> I did see the first hip hop show at at the Stone Pony because that's where I'm from in Jersey. Yeah. It was Tribe Called Quest and De La Soul. So like, I love yeah. seeing people right, in a bar, right? right? Like, yeah. I'm from the Jersey Shore. I've seen Bruce Springsteen live three times, all in bars, yeah. like, and I've been like this close to him, you right. know, because I I worked for the guy who owned the bar. I saw Rakim do um, <clears throat> uh, the full paid and full album at BB King's. Ah, uh, that's not bad. And he went through the whole the whole album in in uh, in progression. He skips Chinese arithmetic because that's the worst song in the album. It's kind of funny. He does like one bar. He's like, all right, we're done with that one. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was a pretty cool show. Yeah. yeah. So I, I'm I'm a small venue guy, and I, I think just having talked you like you're a small venue, you're a small yeah. producer. It's about the quality. Yeah. It's about the whole. It's about the ambience. It's about connection. Connection. Um, well, man, thanks for coming in. Thank you. Um, yeah. Really appreciate it. This has been fun. 
you're you're thanks for being here early because you're you're on the behind two ferns uh, between two ferns <laughs> episodes of the Black Wine Guy Experience. Right. We have a goal of moving upstairs, so hopefully, I think you. I hope I hope you had a good time, and I did, if we yeah. invite you back, we'd we'll love to have you back. Um, you passed our cool test, right. smooth white boy. Right. No. <laughs> Um, but uh, tell everybody where they can find you. So Wine Spectator, the magazine is available on newsstands. Our website, winespectator.com. Uh, we also have an Instagram account, wine underline spectator. And then I'm also on Instagram at jmolesworth, my first initial, my last name, jmolesworth1. There you go. So grateful for my guest, James Molesworth from the Wine Spectator. If you're not following, if you're not following him, you need to be following him. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to be following the Wine Spectator. Um, wine Spectator was very instrumental in my wine journey. Uh, used Great to, to I would just, you know, I did wine intelligence. I would read that. I'd read through uh, Wine Ave. I'd read through everything. And, and then I would say, oh, I want to try that. I want to try that. I want to try that. You know, uh, We're in the fall now, so our issues come out uh, biweekly from now through the end of the year. They kind of come out fast and furious. This is our big season. Um, Cabernet Report will be in November 15. Um, you know, Champagne at the end of the year, then the top 100 and the wine of the year. So this is where it gets, this is where it gets heady. Yep. We're, nice. having, we're having fun. Good, man. Good stuff. Yeah. Well, thanks again for being here. And, uh, hey, it's MJ. Talk to you guys soon. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned something. You had some fun while you were here. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to. And if you want to be an insider and get special content, make sure you go over to blackwineguy.com and get on our email list. 